Good morning, church. It's been a while since I've been up here in front of you guys, and it's good to see all these faces again. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys are seated. We're going to give you a reprieve for just a minute. But then we're going to stand again in a minute when we read the scripture. So if you could turn to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bibles. And I also want you to put a finger in Matthew uh, chapter 5 and chapter 15. We're going to look at a couple verses there a little bit later in the message. Today we're going to be continuing our study on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to be covering the Sixth Commandment. Hopefully you know which one that is. It's a very short command, as are the next few, but it's very strong and it's forceful. It's got punch to it. But you may not even think that it applies to you because you may not think you've ever broken it. But as we're going to see, our Lord Jesus teaches it's a lot easier to break than we may think. Now let's all stand again for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within the, your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we heard your word this morning. Speak to us through it. Convict our hearts. Turn us towards you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. I don't know about you, but when I read these, I find them very humbling. Very humbling as we read this. It's humbling because I know no matter what I do, I can't keep them perfectly. But I also find it helpful in a lot of ways. First, I know, and 
you know, I, I know there's a clear expectation or, or a standard to live up to on God's part. Having clarity on expectations in life is an invaluable thing. Otherwise, you just run around and ramble, and hopefully that's not what I do today. Secondly, I know they point to Jesus who led a sinless life on my behalf. So it gives me great assurance of the power and sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross. It didn't just make my salvation possible, it saved me. It purchased me body and soul for the Lord and for his usage. And thirdly, when we cast the light of the gospel on it, I find it helpful that we see an amazing work that God has done in the hearts of his people. And in that vein, as we consider the sixth commandment, do not murder, we need to keep the bigger picture of Scripture in mind, particularly Jesus' life and instruction to us. So let's consider the big picture question for today. How does Christ fulfill the law? And I want to read you a brief quote from a professor at Southern Seminary and what he had to say, I found very, very informative on how does Christ fulfill the law. When, you know, when Jason sent me that in preparation as the big picture question, I said, oh, that's an easy one to answer. Said nobody ever. <laughs> because there's all kinds of answers to that question, but there's really only one answer, isn't there, the truth of the Scripture. But he says this, David Strock says this, when we think about the way Jesus fulfills the law, we should see his person, his work, and his words in the framework of a new exodus that leads to a new covenant. As Moses led Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with God, so Jesus does with the new covenant people, the church. A new exodus. And so, as we prepare to, dis to discuss the sixth commandment today, I wanted to go over a couple of the New City Catechism questions that we've been dealing with, the New City Catechism. And, I'm sorry, Pastor Jason, I forgot question eight in my manuscript. So... Uh, but I want to look at question four because question four and question eleven because they're foundational to do not murder. Question four: How and why did God create us? God created us male and female in His own image to know Him, love Him, live with Him, and glorify Him. And it is right that we, who were created by God, should live to His glory. And that's based on Genesis one twenty-seven, which is a key passage here. So God created man in his own image. And then question 11, what does God require in the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments? I'm only going to answer the part of the answer for the 6th, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. And that's based on Romans 13, 9, which I'm going to read also. Because I think it's important that we understand the truth of the scripture that underlies these statements. 
you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Church, I firmly believe that these two verses in Genesis and Romans are foundational to understanding how this commandment applies to us today and for people of all ages. Human beings are made in the image of God, and the commandment of God to love your neighbor sets the context for this, this message, which is namely people. So let's level set here before we begin. People are precious to God. All tribes, all nations, all people, all races. And we get a little controversial here, gay or straight, Republican or Democrat, elderly to unborn, male and female. All of them are made in God's image, and all are our neighbor. But all people also have a problem, a big God-solving size problem, sin. We sin. We're all sinners before holy God, and the wages of sin is death. But the punishment for sin, the holy vengeance and judgment belong to the Lord. So while the wages of sin is death, the cause of the death of the body is never to be in a way not sanctioned by God himself. Let me restate that. We must never kill another human being in a way or for a reason that is not sanctioned or approved by God himself in the scriptures. Never in a way not approved by God himself in the scriptures. And for us, as it applies to New Testament believers, because we are not under the old covenant. And I also want you to keep in the forefront of your mind at all times, if one sets Jesus as our prime example in life and death, we see that Jesus didn't come to kill, but he came to die. He came to die for others. Therefore, let's reason our way through this commandment and how it applies to us and what it doesn't apply to. First, I want to look at what's not in the scope of the command. And first off, I think we can obviously rule out the killing of animals. If you've ever read the rest of the Old Testament, you can see that. Right here in Exodus chapter 20, we see a reference in verse 24 to burn offerings. In the New Testament book of Acts, Peter is instructed to kill and eat animals. The Lord doesn't prohibit it. But I want to throw in a caveat here. That doesn't mean animals should be mistreated or killed just for the sake of killing them. In the scripture, the death of animals, like the death of people, is always accompanied by the purpose for doing so. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the slaughter of an animal for food is murder because of this commandment. I mean, Jesus, let's be honest here. Jesus cooked fish and ate it for breakfast. Do we need to really say much more than that? Jesus ate fish. Animals, not even dogs, as much as we love them, are not made in the image of God. Secondly, this commandment does not prohibit capital punishment by the government. In the very next chapter, Exodus 21:12, we see God's righteous command on how murderers should be treated by the governing authorities. Like I said, I want to deal briefly with these, so I'm not going to dive into the nuances 
and complexities that accompany capital punishment. But let me just say this, the word of God is pretty clear on this matter. God has established governing authorities to punish capital crimes, even to the point of death. The government does not bear the sword for no reason. And thirdly, the defense of others is another key area where the commandment does not supply. Right here in Exodus, chapter 22, you find a scenario where a thief breaks in. And the owner of the property defends his family and property, and the thief is killed. God's word says that that man should not be held liable for the death of the thief. Now, does that mean, church, we should just carelessly shoot anybody or put anybody to death who seems a threat to us? You know, I saw a video a while back of a man who shot a a man who got into an altercation outside a convenience store, and he just... He just blasted him, and he said he was standing his ground, and yet all the guy did was push him. Scripture says, all men are made in the image of God, and we should love our neighbor. And lastly, there is the topic of war. In the word of God, we see God commands his people to go to war. But it's always for a good and just purpose. It's never to kill for the sake of killing. It's never to kill for the sake of greed or the sake of man's glory and vanity or to conquer. The effects of these motives are made clear. Needless suffering, pain, death. God only sanctions just wars, not unjust ones. Christ gave his life for others. He didn't take it from them. For while we were yet sinners... He loved us. So now, let's look at what it is talking about. The context of the Ten Commandments is directly in the life of the community. Do not murder. Let me repeat that. Do not murder. Love your neighbor. Don't murder him. Don't murder her. According to Jesus, church, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Everyone, right. So I want to look at three kinds of murder today, how it plays itself out, both then and now. First of all, homicide. Homicide is intentional. You have motive and you do the deed, and an evil deed it is. Just like unjust war, murder, and homicide is driven by greed, jealousy, envy, revenge, malice, hatred, the fruit of sin. A man hires a hitman to kill his wife. That's murder, that's homicide. A man wants revenge for an insult and sets out to get retribution by killing that man. That's murder. This is the crime of homicide, or on grander scales you could call it genocide. The Nazis, in their final solution to the Jewish problem, was murder. God is warning us here, church. He's warning people everywhere. You may murder somebody, and the earthly authorities may never catch you, but he will. He will. That's one authority you won't escape. God will be determined to punish sin on the day of judgment. 
The wages of sin is death. And not just death of the body, but eternal suffering of body and soul in hell. Now I want to talk about something else here besides homicide, something that may be controversial. I keep getting controversial, I feel like, but I know you guys are an understanding crowd and you have good knowledge of the Bible and what it has to say, so I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know. But some of you may think this is controversial. I want to talk about suicide. And now I don't want to get into the depth and discussion about why people commit suicide, because there's all kinds of reasons, or even about the philosophical question that I discussed with some of the other elders about whether a true Christian can even bring himself to commit suicide. Because there's some debate on that. But I do want to deal briefly with this because all life is sacred, even our own. Even our own. The taking of life of those who bear the image of God is simply this, a crime, a sin. Only God, who is the creator and giver of all life, has the right to take it away. And he delegates that authority according to his purpose. We talked about that a minute ago. To take one's own life is an unsanctioned killing. It's self-murder. To quote preacher Adrian Rogers, he said this on the subject, not only is it wrong to take someone else's life, It's wrong to take your own. No one has a right to take his own life because in the truest sense of the word, your life is not your own life. It comes from God and there's no excuse. And he he goes on, he says, may I underscore that? No excuse, no reason for one ever to take his own life. Even in the most incurable disease, even with the most constant unbearable pain, Even in the time of severest trouble and heartache and persecution, one should never take his own life. And here's the key part here. For that takes out of the hands of God matters that should only be left in God's hands. God alone is wise enough. God alone is strong enough. God alone is good enough to handle these problems rightly. And we should never, never, never contemplate suicide. Now, I don't know if anybody's getting upset out there about that. You may be saying, what do you know? You don't know what somebody's going through. Maybe they can't help it. They're suffering depression or chemical imbalances. And I don't want to get into medical areas here because that's not my role. I'm here to preach the word to you about what it says about sin and murder and salvation. But let me tell you what I do know as somebody who suffers with Parkinson's disease. I've seen the depths of depression. There are good days and there are bad days where you feel like you can't go on another day. And I'm not alone for my bride suffers as well from her own body, bodily health challenges as I know others in this congregation do as well. But let me be clear here, church. Let me be clear here. We cling to the fact that we belong body and soul, both life and death, to Jesus Christ. 
Sorry, I'm shaking a little bit here. That's the answer to the first question in the catechism, isn't it, too? Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And more importantly, as I've done before, the scripture which underpins that, Romans 14, 7 and 8, which says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Folks, this is the answer to the sin of suicide. This is the defense, the strength, the counterpunch to the sin of suicide and the strength to overcome and resist the temptation to even contemplate it. The Word of God. As if Romans wasn't enough. There's a passage in Philippians Philippians chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 1 of Philippians. And I am going to endeavor to make it through this without breaking down emotionally. It's important that we read it, though, because it is the Word of God. Philippians chapter 1. Go to verse 18. We're going to read through 26. Many of you may know this passage. Some have, may have it memorized. Philippians 1.18 What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Powerful passage from Paul when he was in chains. A man familiar with affliction. Not only that, the word of God, but God gives us two other weapons to use in the fight against depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide. The first is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You see, the third person of the Trinity has taken up residence in the Christian. And he will strengthen you for the trials to come. He has strengthened me to get up here and preach before you. I'm relying on him. Holy Spirit will bear fruit in your life and enable you to bear up under any challenge. 
And second, God has given us his church and the fellowship therein for the building up of souls. It's one of the great remedies of these problems. There's a book in the elders' book nook on anxiety and depression that has teachings and writings from uh, Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher on anxiety and depression. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. And one of the great remedies he gives is the community of the church. Is the community of the church. The fellowship of Christ followers. But it's not just about your health. It's also just as much about other people's health as well. Around you. You see, when you dwell on yourself, you miss out on the blessing. Coming to church is not just a burden. It's not a duty. It's a blessing and a privilege for Christ desires to build his church on his image, which is an image of humility and selflessness. And when you neglect this, I would say you're slowly murdering yourself Sunday by Sunday. So let me close this subtopic with a statement. If you're dealing with thoughts of suicide, talk to somebody. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to another Christian that you go to church with or that you know. Talk to somebody. Because what is your only hope in life and death? That you belong to Christ. Well, maybe today you don't belong to Christ. Maybe you're here visiting today. Maybe you're a guest to somebody and you're hearing this for the first time. You're hearing about Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know why you came. Maybe you just felt compelled to come to church today. You don't know why. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, my friend. He's calling you to get right with him, to believe in the Lord. To believe in Jesus Christ for salvation because without him there's no hope. No hope at all. But not only does this commandment forbid suicide and homicide, but also I want to touch on infanticide, the killing of babies. For over 40 years, the murder of preborn babies has been allowed in our culture, and millions of babies have paid the price. It's unconscionable, and it's murder. It amazes me the lengths and effort people will go to care about to protect the things they care about. They'll care about trees and endangered species. And let me be clear, I don't think it's wrong at all to care about those things. It's good to care about our environment. We've been given the, the world and creation as stewards of it by God. It's the creation. It's a mandate of God to take care of our world. But when we're for that and we allow the destruction of babies in the womb... We've got a big problem in our society. As I said earlier, it's a, it's a God-solving size problem. It's a sin problem. But we need to be careful because we can get wrapped up in that. And on the flip side, we have those who are against abortion. You turn a blind eye to their fellow man and his or her sufferings. I'll give you some homework. Matthew 25, read about the sheeps and the goats parable of the sheep and the goats. You can go read that when you get home today with your family. 
See if it changes how you feel about the homeless or the refugee who has nothing to bring to you but their problems. Homicide, suicide, infanticide, they all abide in our culture, but I want to talk about a fourth kind of murder. A fourth kind of murder. And that is the kind that's invisible. It's invisible because it has not yet found expression outwardly in the killing action towards others. Make no mistake, friend, God knows it. God remembers it. He won't forget it. He will treat it as if it actually even happened, though you only contemplated it in your heart. You see, the human heart is a treasure trove of wickedness and sin. It can conceive all kinds of evil and seeks out its own desires, even at the expense of other people's lives. Turn in your Bibles. Remember I told you to hold your finger in Matthew. Turn over to Matthew 15. And let's look at verse 19. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You recognize some of those from our Exodus 20, 10 commandments passage? Yeah. Jesus Christ said, murders don't come into the heart. Murders come out of the heart. When there's murder in the heart, whether it ever really takes place, when God comes to judge, he's going to write down murderer. He's going to write down murderer. I want you to notice... Go, turn a couple pages back to the left, Matthew 5, 21. Turn to it, Matthew 5, 21. This is Jesus' commentary on the fourth kind of murder. You have heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. See, there's the command. You shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, that's the Hebrew, that's the word reka, which is, carries much more weight than you fool, is a term of utter contempt. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So church, what is the Lord saying here about us? What is the Lord saying about us? The Lord says that if your heart is dark and it burns, and it burns with anger toward other people, if you look down upon any human being made in the image of God with contempt, even enemies, if you say, Rekha, you fool, the Lord writes in his book, Murder. That's taking it to a whole new level. A radical level. You see, do not murder. When we hear that, okay, we don't kill somebody. You get angry with somebody, hold them in contempt. You're a murderer. That takes it to a whole new heart level.
to turn, look at a couple verses up at verse 17. Get here in my Bible real quick. Verse 17, and let's see some, some more commentary on this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? How can he say that, and what does that mean? Because it's key to understanding what we're talking about today. It's the big picture question, isn't it? How does Christ fulfill the law? I'm going to read a little bit of the longer version of David Strock's quote. It'll only take a minute. When we think about the way Jesus fulfills the law, we should see his person, his work, and his words in the framework of a new exodus that leads to a new covenant. As Moses led Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with God, so Jesus does the same with a new covenant people. Now that's the part we already read. And here's the rest. In fact, this fulfillment is just what Jesus foretold. Or Moses foretold, sorry. Moses, not Jesus. Beginning with Moses, the prophet, prophets proclaimed the coming of a new covenant with all its blessings. And this is what Jesus fulfills. Therefore, as we hear Jesus say that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we should understand that eschatological, that's end times, things are coming to, to an end, with the coming of Jesus. We should understand the meaning of this statement. Moreover, when listening to all that Jesus says in his five discourses in Matthew, we should learn how he is fulfilling the law. In a word, he is fulfilling the law in the way that the prophets foretold. He's bringing the new covenant. He's bringing the new covenant. As Matthew 26, 28 will indicate, this means there's no longer a need for sacrifices because he is the final sacrifice. At the same time, because his sacrifice creates a new people, it also leads to a new way of obedience, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, a passage that we should all be familiar with. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And thankfully, that obedience has also been provided in Christ. Matthew 5, 8 says that Jesus has given his disciples new hearts. He's given us the obedience in our own hearts through him. Christ fulfills the law with a new covenant and a new exodus, the gospel-driven church. I didn't coin that term and I didn't try to steal it. It just kind of flowed out of when I was writing. The gospel-driven church. There's books called that, I know, but that's not what I was thinking of until after I reread it. Christ's disciples have been given new hearts with this new covenant in Jesus' blood. So what are we to do with this, church? What are we to do with this? What's all this fulfilling the law? One more passage. I want you to turn over in your Bibles quickly to the right. 1 John chapter 3. And I want to talk... I want to talk briefly and reinforce this with, with more scripture. What I'm talking about, all the murder in the heart, 
why is it just as much a sin as actually killing somebody? 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Read that again. Soak it in. Brothers and sisters, maybe you have a heart full of hate. Maybe is it, is it full of contempt for those not like you or those you don't like. If your heart is full of hate, the Apostle John has some strong words here that need to be contemplated. On the day of judgment, God the Father will say you're a murderer and no murderer has eternal life. John doesn't mince words. I like that about the apostles. They don't play around. John, especially in 1 John, he doesn't mess around with stuff. Hatred is a real problem still in our culture. One race hates another. Atheists hate Christians. Christians hate atheists. I've seen it. Democrats and Republicans hate each other. One generation hates the previous one, feeling like they're leeches, or they made bad decisions that affect them. I could go on and on. There's plenty of hatred to go around and plenty of contempt. We just found out in recent weeks that a prominent social media platform is filling people's feeds with hatred and anger-sparking posts due to an algorithm they wrote back in 2018. The problem of hatred, anger, and murder is not going to be solved by politics or education, at least not ultimately. These have some power in the temporal sense, temporary sense to restrain things somewhat but they don't provide a solution. They don't last. They don't provide a solution to sin. Remember that passage, for out of the human heart proceeds evil thoughts, murder, etc. What the world needs is Jesus Christ. What the world needs is the gospel. What the world needs is your love. The love of Christ. The world needs you, and you, and you, and you, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not only because God commanded it, because while we were yet sinners, God loved us, and he gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Christ fulfilled the law by making the new covenant I know I'm repeating myself, but I want this to hammer home in your hearts, providing his disciples new hearts, hearts that have the law of God written on them, hearts that love God and love their neighbor selflessly and love their neighbor enough to die for them. Because if you have that kind of heart, which is what Jesus gives, How easy does it become to tell your neighbor about Jesus? How easy does that become when you're willing to die for them?
But it is hard, isn't it? I'm not going to deny it. I struggle to tell my neighbors about Jesus. You know, most people rank public speaking higher than dying on the fear scale. And let me tell you, being up here in front of all you folks, I can tell you there's some truth to that. I can truth to, there's some truth to that. But you know, if I wasn't nervous, I'd be arrogant. And the Lord doesn't use the proud and the arrogant. Christian brother or sister, are you knowingly or unknowingly harboring hatred or contempt in your heart? I'll ask you again to consider this. Are you at odds with another brother and sister of Christ? It's time to repent and turn back to God and be reconciled with him and that person. It's time to be reconciled to God. It's time to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. He died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for all peoples. He paid the wages of sin. He paid the death debt you owe. Or if you're in Jesus Christ, that you owe. In exchange, he gives you new, he gives you his righteousness so that you have hope when you face the great judgment. You know, Jesus, on that day, it's great assurance, isn't it, church, that on that day, when you face judgment, Jesus is going to step in and say, Father, this one belongs to me. I paid for his sin. We need to come to Jesus for life. Though your skin, sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, says the Lord.